0: Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Oh, hi. Hello. And Aaron, say hi. Hello there. General Kenobi. (laughs) It has to be said. Um, This week, we're hopefully not going to have anywhere near as much depressing news as we did last week, uh, even though that depressing situation continues. Um, But we are looking at what wild boars might be doing up in the highlands. We're also seeing what the RHS has got to say about slugs and snails. And we're looking at a monochromatic mustelid that might be hiding in a hedgerow near you. So uh, let's jump on into the news, shall we? right well we're into this week's news and i thought i'd start this week off by recapping some of the events of the last week ukraine wise which even though there's been some pretty bad news um, but at the time of recording for our last episode in fact about 20 minutes after we'd finished recording our last episode where we had reported on uh, ukraine there was an update from the Polish zoo team that had headed over the border. They'd made it over the border at that point uh, and were on their way to one of the uh, the collections. It wasn't Kiev Zoo uh, or Kharkiv, uh, but it was one of the other collections. It there is were... being reported it was Kiev Zoo, though, but on a lot of yeah. sites,
1: but in Kiev. Zoo. I think
0: part of the problem is the language barrier and people are yeah. on Facebook and things like that. So what we do know is that particular team of Polish keepers got in, they managed to get some tigers and some lions and cubs, I believe, as well, out of the country, back over the border, relatively unaccosted, uh, and managed to get some of those animals to safety. What we do also know as well is the only gorilla in the entire entirety of uh, Ukraine is still in Kiev Zoo um, and is probably unlikely to be moved purely from a stress point of view. An animal like that is probably heavily sedated at the moment to just keep him Mm -hmm. happy and you know sort of level but there is some good news in that sense in that they have been able to get some of those animals out and get them to relative safety for for the moment hopefully more will happen so at the time of the recording of of this episode we know that that has happened so here's hoping that we end up with some more animals being rescued or, or allowed to get out at some point and uh, yeah so that's my quick update for for anyone listening and and who hadn't heard anything on that, on that over the uh, the following week mm, anyway. well, there's some good news isn't it
2: mm, yeah so we'll go from uh, that very short brief update to Aaron
0: what's happening up in
2: Scotland yeah so this article comes from us from the BBC and the way I've written this is I kind of feel like I'm gonna end up going off my bullet points and into a a bit of a a rant. What I've decided to do... never happened before, Aaron. This is highly unusual for you. (laughs) I I know. This is completely out of character. Um, (laughs) So the article from the BBC is uh, The Thriving Wild Boar Population Creating Havoc in the Highlands. And as I say, I've kind of decided that this is an important article upon which to the kind of language that is used by an agenda-driven party gender driven parties uh, to make wildlife seem like the per- perpetual enemy of progression and balance when oh. in fact the opposite is true um so my idea here and how i've written this if i stay on my bullet points is that uh, i want to demonstrate partly the bias of the estate culture and partly how powerful language can be particularly in the media even the title of the article itself which again, you can find at BBC Online, is misleading the reader into believing that wild boar are invading an area of natural beauty. But as you guys know, the Highlands are not how they should be. There's nowhere near the amount of forest cover that should be there. And as beautiful as it is, it's in a sense, ecologically barren.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: So yeah. So what is actually going on in the Highlands? So if you humour me, as i relay this information i'll try to decipher a bit of truth from media jargon so the article starts with this statement that wild boar once roamed free in the scottish highlands but they were driven to extinction by human activities primarily hunting and habitat loss the bit that it doesn't mention is that a partial uh habitat lost and partially the habitat pretty much being turned on its head and ruined uh, but i suppose the two are very similar or at the least they're linked. So they, the wild boar have since been encouraged to make something of a comeback in some of the lucky areas of, of, uh, of Britain with the highlands being just one example. And they're beginning to sink their snouts into their natural mission, which is essentially truffling for food and managing the environment because they are eco managers. They turn up the uh, soil in any given habitat that they're in uh, or Things to regenerate, things to grow, soil to become aerated, fertile, all that kind of stuff, and then of course they're they're also defecating on it, which is also another natural fertilizer. Anyway, Stephen Mackenzie, an Aberchalder and Glengarry estate stalker, uh, reveals that the boar caused chaos by churning up land and uh, threatening livestock. So there's two things that I want to point out here. Firstly, notice that Mr. Dork, for an estate, it's his job to be culling wildlife for the very same people who are part of the hunting fraternity and the same kind of people who were probably behind giving payouts to a certain MP when he is publicly showing no duty of care towards eagles. Uh, It's that kind of person that Mr. McKenzie will be working for. Secondly, notice that his words through the medium of the article's writing. To quote, cause chaos. So this is intended to read concern and garner empathy for his situation. Anyway, he claims that the animals grow to pretty huge proportions. To be to be fair, uh, he claims that they leave anything from pothole-sized divots to bomb craters in their wake, and that these must be repaired. Uh, now we're talking about an age culture meets wildlife. wildlife. The farming community have never been great at fencing with the intent of keeping wildlife out, only to keep their financial investment in. Uh, Now, there's nothing wrong with by ensuring that it doesn't run off. However, if you won't invest in their safety by keeping the dangerous animals out, then I'm afraid you don't really have a leg to stand on when you're complaining. That being said, farmers are under increasing pressure through lack of governmental support and being squeezed and out-competed by supermarkets and the farms that ally themselves to them. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad you that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I don't want to. Farmers feed the country, but I don't want to be too unfair on them. Plus, what I'm kind of talking about in re- regards to wildlife kind of uh persecution, it tends to stem from the estates more so than yeah Oh, yeah, there are there's a mile farm.
1: between, between farmers and, and, and shooting estates, yeah,
2: absolutely, yeah, however. Perimeter protection is definitely something that the government should be offering more support to farmers over. In other countries, they're doing it. In, in mm-hmm. America, in some places in Europe, they do it to keep the wolves out. In Africa, they've done it to keep lions out. In India, they, they've done it to an extent for tigers, but also they they offer um, what's the word? government compensation. Right. Uh, if you can prove that, for example, your goat was taken by a tiger. What I'm trying to say is that the government should be supporting our farmers uh, to maybe give grants to help them uh, erect appropriate fencing, especially as we turn our attention towards more appropriate rewilding measures. But as it stands, the current agricultural approach to wildlife is essentially akin to using chicken wire to stop your poultry from getting out, then cursing the foxes for being able to get in. And also notice the use of the word bomb too. It, that's powerful emotive fear mongering language
1: especially at the moment
2: especially at the moment yeah uh so he continues he, he complains that the uh the boar dig down below the turf causing the farmers a lot of man and machine hours plus financial expenditures such as fertilizer and grasses in order to fix uh these these holes and claims that it is almost cost prohibitive and Again, uh, investing in the the right perimeter protections may be more expensive in that moment when you're buying them, but in the long run, they pay themselves off. If you compare constantly throwing money at the repetitive activity of these holes and and regrowing grass and such, the costs build up, and then over time they'll be more expensive than just investing in the right equipment in the first place. He then goes on to claim that these beasts can trace their origins to imported boar used by landowners for hunting and that there may now be hundreds in the highlands. He claims that they breed with ease, he has seen sounders, which is the correct term for social groups of wild boar, of up to 26. And again, I'm going to point out terminology uh, using the term beast to conjure images of an uncontrollable monster. He also tries to sway the conversation with how these uh, how these boar may have been introduced when the more important thing is that they were at one point not so long ago naturally wild and native to these lands and thus welcome kind of rewilding addition to our realm did you see what i did there guys he yeah. said beast yeah. so i said realm <laughs> yeah doesn't matter i thought that was funny oh, <laughs> oh well yeah uh, a direct quote from bbc um, they say the boar spend the daytime hidden in woodland, but under the cover of darkness they start to roam. They are encroaching <laughs> into populated areas such as Fort Augustus and Invergari. So again, if I can just pinpoint some terminology: hidden in woodland and under the cover of darkness they start to roam. It sounds like the lyrics to a Meatloaf song. Um, anyone else fingers and like rapes in in that when you read that or hear that? I mean, it,
0: it would be rather cool if they were sort of stalking the countryside, eating <laughs> people as they go.
2: It sounds like a They're wolf and man from... Med- yeah. yeah. So, anyway, secondly, the term encroaching. This uh, used to make the reader feel that these animals are stealing land. I'm afraid that these estates and their owners, hell, even the houses that we're currently recording, were and still are encroaching on boar land so again use of language there Uh and uh and also after my direct quote from uh from bbc direct quote from mr Mackenzie himself he says they're incredibly difficult to keep in unless you've got extensive electric fencing and even that is not foolproof a fence is not an obstacle to them if they run at it they'll smash it and just go straight through or they'll go up to it slowly and with the sheer power of their necks and their snouts they can just l- lever it up from below and crawl underneath of ease and whilst i acknowledge that pigs of all varieties are pretty tough and can be, uh a challenge to to house or to, or to keep out i mean there are multiple zoos around the uk a, a veritable plethora of captive collections actually that how is all manner of domestic pig breeds and wild swine species and all of them keep theirs in so go and ask how and then turn it inside out or back to front whatever you ha- you want to do but that will give you your solution if you can keep them in then you can keep them out uh so there it is in a nutshell i basically took issue with i feel it was nonsense but it was made all the more dangerous by a huge media outlet like BBC reporting on it using such reckless and insensitive language. Yeah. They should be ashamed. However, I, I am not ashamed because I managed to get through that without getting into a rant and by keeping on, on the topic of my bullet points. But yeah, I, I think the BBC rant- should be ashamed.
0: Hmm. That was relatively rant-free, I could to admit.
2: Mm, it I was... controlled
0: myself. <laughs> yeah, well done. It's it's um it's one of those things that unfortunately it's far too easy to use emotive language because it it sucks people in okay. as opposed to using scientific language which can alienate people. So
2: emotive uh, fear and uh controversy sell papers. Yes. This is yeah. this is very true.
0: And right and we'll... newts as well. In. Sending and sending in, in newts. <laughs> 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 we'll go on from, uh, from wild boars to something slightly smaller. In fact, something that's probably on a wild boar's menu, which is uh, slugs and snails. And puppy Pretty, dog true. tails? Well, I'm sure if they can get a hold of them. Uh, Drew, what have we got?
1: Uh, yeah, so my article this week, uh, Gareth already posted on social media, for Christ's sake. Uh, but... Yeah, sorry, that's my bad.
0: <laughs> So, it's you know, fine. Last year, That'd be last week. We posted that, or I posted that. It was yeah, genuinely that interesting, and I hadn't asked you what you were going to be doing that week. <laughs> yeah, so it's
1: fine. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cover it anyway because I imagine a lot of people haven't read it yet. So it's titled "Planet Friendly," RHS to no longer class slugs and snails as pests. So the RHS, for those who don't know, stands for the Royal Horticultural Society. They are the UK's leading gardening charity, and they want to inspire a passion for gardening and plants. Um, And I think they've got a pretty good reputation. We've got um, an RHS estate relatively nearby us, which is is very nice. Um, I saw my first green woodpeckers there for a long time, two of them, Um, and my first marsh tit, which I think was a marsh tit. If it was a willow tit, uh, that's quite rare, and I probably should have reported that, and uh, and many goldcrests as well. Anyway, The RHS will no longer be classing slugs and snails as pests, despite their reputation, Uh, which is great because pest is a horrible word that has no place in scientific vernacular um, and I hope falls out of use in modern dialogue someday, someday soon. So uh, the charity says that although the gastropods are the garden visitor about which they receive most complaints, they should be considered an important part of a healthy garden ecosystem. Uh, and according to their research, only 9 out of the 44 recognised species of slug in the UK eat garden plants. They are nature's recyclers, cleaning dead matter from the garden, and are also important food for more beloved garden guests, including hedgehogs and birds. Some species even get rid of algae from greenhouses. Um, I'll just take a break from the article here for a second, because slugs and snails can give hedgehogs massive problems and or lungworms, so they don't eat that many. Uh, we shouldn't be encouraging hedgehogs to eat them either. Uh, so but they are good for amphibians, though, as I mentioned uh, last week. Very much so, so. It says, in instances where slugs cause unwanted damage to plants, more ethical modes of intervention were advised by scientists. Uh, this include using mulch or planting species that slugs prefer to eat. Andrew Salisbury, the charity's principal entomologist, said, The RHS is all too aware of the role that gardens have in supporting biodiversity and as such will no longer label any garden wildlife as pests. Instead, there will be a greater cons- uh, consideration of and focus on the role that slugs, aphids, and caterpillars play in a balanced garden ecosystem, along with more popular wildlife or animals, such as birds, hedgehogs, and frogs. Fantastic. Mm. That is all I have to say about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, great. So the charity will be trying to do positive PR for invertebrates, including aphids, ants, and ladybirds, okay. which garden experts have advised in the past to destroy. Their Entomologists will also remind gardeners that maligned insects, such as wasps, eat flies, aphids, and uh, caterpillars, which can cause problems uh, and so should be welcomed. And many people also fear earwigs, but they eat aphids too. And caterpillars are vital food for birds. Uh, I covered this in our oak tree creature feature a long while back. Uh, They're particularly important for birds like blue tits. Salisbury then adds, we are never going to eliminate slugs, aphids, caterpillars, and other plant munching invertebrates from our gardens. Their existence, after all, predates the garden itself, and our plots are all the more lively and valuable uh, because of them. Uh, Amid the climate and biodiversity emergencies, now is the time to gracefully accept, even actively encourage, more of this into our gardens, end quote. I just want to come out of this, um, actually, because I'm not sure we've had two articles together that have uh, worked so well together, because uh, I think the people in this uh, Scottish uh, estate, need to uh, listen to this man because he is talking some
2: sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah. There's also I, the, the use of language again, in not there? Exactly. Yeah. He's, yeah. Posi- he's pretty much all positive.
1: Speaking
0: so, as okay. someone who is a keen gardener and mm. someone who absolutely loves slugs and snails as a group of uh, invertebrates, I am really torn when it comes to dealing with things like that, but I have never and will never use pesticides to get rid of them I accept no, a no. percentage of my things that I grow like uh, last year was tomatoes and a variety of other things I, I accepted that a percentage of those would be eaten by slugs and some of them were as much as I put netting up and, and you know things to try and stop them yep. I still ended up with a percentage missing but because I'm not having to survive on it you know these are fun little things that I'm just basically doing as a side project um, yeah. I'm not too upset. So, uh, no. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah uh, I mean, as I said, they're not going anywhere. So, you might as well, rather than just getting irate constantly, actually work mm. out how yeah, you exactly. can mitigate damage, how you can live alongside them. There are some tips at the end of this article, actually. That,
0: well, um, I would say, but, yeah again, it's, it's like the uh, <laughs> wild boar issue. If you spend little money to protect things, you know, on fencing, you're going to have things get in just yeah. the same as with the, exactly. uh, the and snails. If you spend <clears throat> a small amount of time or effort trying to protect your, your crops, say you're going to have them get in. You're going to have to accept a certain percentage of losses. If you spend a lot of time, effort and money, you're probably going to have far less. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: But yeah, I just
1: wanted to come out and say just how much I really like this article and actually how it, how it works alongside errands because it, it's a completely completely opposite viewpoint and one that we should definitely all be working towards and uh, and certainly veering far away from the, the, the people featured in, in Aaron's one. But anyway, so this leads on basically to say that uh, the article I don't think actually mentions this is something that I just wrote down, but the total area of all gardens in the UK uh, is estimated at about 433,000 hectares. For England, the total area of gardens is more than four and a half times larger than that of all of our national nature reserves. So this is a substantial resource for a number of species and why, personally, I think we should be making our gardens as wildlife or nature friendly as possible. Anyway, the article then goes on to say that this is a big departure for the RHS, um, which each year releases a list of top garden pests complained about by their members. And instead, the charity will now focus more on the threats to gardens posed by invasive species and climate change. Uh, Many invasive species and plant diseases thrive in milder, wetter climates, especially if there's not much winter frost to kill them off. And it's this climate that the UK is moving towards. Uh, The Chelsea Flower Show, which many of you may be familiar with, is run by the RHS. Last year, it featured lots of biodiversity themed gardens as designers had a more relaxed attitude uh, to neatness and planting. And uh, gardens at the event contain plants commonly thought of as weeds—another word we should just stop using—and uh, piles of dead wood to attract wildlife. And the article finishes okay. with some advice from the RHS on how to keep slugs from your plants, which I will read out to you now. So, first bit: slugs love young, vulnerable seedlings. So, transplant sturdy plant but in pots. Uh, these can then be given some protection with cloches, uh, which is like a—it's oh, like a plant cover, isn't it? Um, The best example
0: for things like that would be half a Coke bottle, half a two-litre Coke bottle.
1: Yep. Um, Second bit is the leaf-munching creatures are excellent for compost heaps as they get rid of dead and decaying matter, helping turn your waste into a lovely compost. So you can go out on a damp night, find some slugs and put them in your compost heap, or at least uh, near less vulnerable plants. Some gardeners plant strategically, making sure to put plants slugs find delicious near their favourite plants so they're eaten instead of. And the next one is my favourite three-word sentence. Dig a pond. It'll encourage frogs, which will eliminate slugs for you, without the guilt of setting down poison pellets, which you shouldn't do anyway, or drowning them in beer. Uh, It's great for the ecosystem as well. What a waste of beer. Uh, Encourage birds with a bird feeder, especially during spring uh, when the young can be fed with juicy snails. Obviously, song thrushes are pretty well-renowned for eating slugs. uh, Sorry, um, snails in particular. Uh, and finally, raking over soil and removing fallen leaves during the winter can allow birds to eat slug eggs that have been exposed. I'm a little bit dubious on that last one, as I think mm. raking leaves is pointless because uh, they. I personally think they should be allowed to, just to be absorbed into the undergrowth and lose the nutrients in the soil. Do. Yeah, but you know I'm considerably less knowledgeable than the uh, the UK's leading garden charity, so uh, I'll shut up. But um, there we go. That's uh, it's a great article. Well done to the RHS for uh, changing your viewpoint. Yeah, uh, very progressive yeah. Um, and I, I really hope this starts to bolster real change with uh, with our gardening habits.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. fantastic. It's good to see and I can't wait. In uh, two, three weeks time, I'm going to be planting some of my seedlings out. I've got corn going for this year but mm-hmm. I've got some leftover, I say leftover, it was some uh, broccoli that never actually flowered and just went straight to seed um, so I never get any broccoli off it but that is going to be my sacrificial plants to keep the slugs off yep. that will uh, draw attention away whilst the corn
2: establishes itself.
0: We've had uh, uh, yeah.
2: a lot of success with, with corn and potatoes, actually.
0: Yeah, potatoes yeah. are always a good one. to go.
2: With. Doing some more this year, maybe.
0: Yeah. Yep. Send in what you're doing, what you're planting up this year, listeners. Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> What's your sacrificial plant interest? <clears throat> yeah. Right. Well, we'll go on from slugs and snails to an animal that actually really loves slugs and snails in fact it makes up a good percentage of their diet Uh, we're going to go into our creature feature and meet a monochromatic mammal i love saying that so let's go into our creature feature
2: it's the creature feature
0: right we're into this week's creature feature uh, and no journey into a pond this week uh, or you know wandering through the depths of the triassic wastelands uh, this week, we're just well looking into a hedgerow, uh, and in that hedgerow, anywhere throughout Europe or Eurasia, you might come across this week's creature feature. It is the fantastic badger. Most people know what a badger is. There are, in fact, badgers uh, all over, let's like say, Eurasia, even Asia as well. America has its own species of badger. Uh, there are loads of different animals also called badgers as well, which aren't directly related to the one we're talking about, which is the Eurasian badger, otherwise known as Meles Meles. But what is a badger? Badgers are a member of the mustelid family. That's the same family that you find weasels, stoats, otters, all of those different, well, weasel families of animals. They're all very similar. They've got very strong sets of jaws. They're also quite smelly. Uh, and in fact, smell is very important to these animals, uh, and badgers are no different. So, badgers. Are sad to say the UK's largest land predator. That's not to do with the fact that we've never had any larger land predators. We have basically exterminated the wolves and the bears that used to live in the UK, as well as lynx. Um, I think that's all of our large land predators that we've ever had. I don't think we've had any others, yeah. Yeah, I think that's it.
1: So, um... well, we long ago we how well depends how far back you go, isn't it? Because we like uh, hyena and things like that have been found.
0: We're not going that far back, thankfully. Okay. Um, but badgers, like I say, they are the UK's largest land predator uh, and one of the most well-known, uh, iconic species. Uh, they're famed for their black and white striped face, their sturdy body, uh, and using their strong front paws to dig for food. Uh, if you've ever been walking in a, a British wood or a European wood, you might come across one of their sets, which is where these guys live. And they are well, usually huge mounds of earth that have been dug out the side of underneath an oak tree or something like that to basically keep them nice and safe. Some of these sets can be multi-generational uh, and they can also be anywhere close to 100 years of age, some of the really, really old ones, and be made up of multiple chambers where the badgers, as a family, will live. But the word badger, this is where uh, it gets interesting because you, you both know that I uh, love to go delving into the meaning of names for the animals that we've come across. So first off, can either of you two name me another word or another name for a badger? Um, Bodger. <laughs> <laughs> in Potatoes. Uh, yeah, probably, probably nice one. one of the most famous badgers. No, no. But um, well, when it comes to to badgers, like I say, they have got. Is it goodger? Not
2: goodger. No, I don't. I haven't got that one down. I'm afraid. Well, um, I just thought, you know, if there's badgers, there's got to be goodgers too. Uh, I like it.
1: Wolverines, Wolverines were often called gluttons, weren't they? Do we? Yeah. Do they also? Yeah, badgers call badgers, don't badgers get gluttons? that
2: name either. I
1: don't. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Well, you you haven't got the a bear weasel. <laughs> you haven't got the name that these guys also go by um, yet, but I'll I'll tell you that in a second. But first, Farmer's Bane. Well, that's we'll get onto that as well. <laughs> so, the word badger itself. It's thought to derive from the word badge, or from the same root word of badge, uh, meaning the white mark uh, on the front of a badger's head, worn like a badge, and it may date to somewhere around the 16th century. So that's quite recent. Yeah, that's quite. Oh, there's there's a lot of names that go even further back for that, and the one the uh, the one that seems to uh, to go further back from that uh, are ones that up until the 18th century. Uh, badgers were known by a variety of different names. This is just in England alone actually. Brock is the uh, the most common one.
2: Oh, now that may, be, have that, that
0: may be familiar to you, Aaron, as a parent of a young child. If you've watched the current iteration of Peter Rabbit, um, also in any of Beatrix Posse's tales, the badger character in that was called Tommy Brock. Mm, um, yeah. And the word Brock does come up an awful lot when it comes to talking about badgers. So it's a word that is from Old English and goes even further back. But we've also got uh, other words like pate and pate grey, borson. The name borson um, seems to come from end, which is referred to something striped with white. Pat, uh, spelled P-A-T-E, is a local name that was once popular in northern England. Um, So that's another part of the country. Uh, the name badget as well uh, was once common, but restricted very much to around Norfolk, while Earthdog uh, was used in Southern Ireland. So crossing over to Ireland there. But the word brock, spelt B-R-O-C-K, seems to have been borrowed from Celtic, uh, from the Scottish brock, uh, spelt B-R-O-C-H. Uh, the Welsh word for badger as well is sometimes referred to as brock, spelt B-R. O-C-H. Um, there's also Proto-Celtic as well, which comes before that. Brocco, meaning grey. The other more sort of commonly used Welsh word nowadays for badger is mochendir, which means earth pig. Um, so, yeah, it's got a variety of different names just in the UK alone. In French, the word bechure, um, I probably butchered that, B-E-C-H-E-U-R, um, meaning digger has also been suggested as a source for the word badger. But I much prefer the, uh, the badge part to its name. And that's not just me yeah. being sort of focusing on the English language. In Proto-Germanic, it's known as Pashu. And it's where we seem to get the word Dax from, because the word Daxhund yeah. it's a badger, it's a badger, badger. Yeah, mm-hmm. Those tiny little sausage dogs were originally bred to go down into badger burrows to <laughs> flush them out. Which you wouldn't really think a badger would. Uh, well, you'd think a badger would annihilate one of those dogs, to be honest. Yeah, if
1: I was a badger, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bulk at that. <laughs>
0: Why are you sending out a tiny dog at me? Oh, you've sent me a snack. How <laughs> lovely. <Yeah. laughs> but um, and one more final one um, to close out the rest of Europe um, when it comes to names for these guys. Um, Norwegian, um, they're known as Svintax. I've definitely butchered that from the. Svintex, sorry. And the root of that word is tech, and it means to construct. So the badger would have been named after the fact that it digs tunnels or constructs tunnels. So that's pretty cool in itself. So like I say, badgers are very widespread over most of Europe and, in fact, into uh, Asia as well. The the badger, the European badger, uh, as we know it, it belongs to the, the family Meles, and that has four members to it. We've got uh, Meles Meles, which is our European badger. We've got Mele's Lucernus, uh, which is known as the Asian badger, which looks almost identical to our European one uh, in almost every single way. Uh, And then we've got uh, Mele's Arakuma, which is the Japanese badger, which basically looks like a a sort of slightly washed out colouring to the badger, far more sort of fawn in colour than the grey that we're used to. Uh, And then the final one, which is Mele's kensines, uh, which is the Caucasian badger, which is found uh, around um, the Caucasus mountains. uh, The Caucasus is the mountains uh, around sort of the edges of Europe into the Middle East. So, yeah, there are quite a few different badgers. In fact, there are eight subspecies of the Eurasian badger, to give you an idea of just how many there are out there. So they are very widespread. They fill in pretty much every sort of habitat niche, That you could possibly imagine in fact that's why for habitat for this i've got found throughout europe england wales scotland pretty much the rest of europe in pretty much any habitat that they can find somewhere to live in they much prefer woodland but you'll also find badgers living near the coast you'll also find badgers living in the middle of cities as well uh, and becoming incredibly used to coming into people's gardens so it's what comes of being a uh, generalist really so they're pretty good at what they do. So badgers themselves, uh, this particular species, there's actually quite a bit of fossil evidence uh, for the European badger. Um, and it seems that they actually evol- evolved from the Chinese badger, which is now extinct, uh, which was Meles thoralei in the early Pleistocene. So that's the, uh, the ice age, the last ice age. And the modern species originated during the middle Pleistocene And uh, comparisons between the fossils of living specimens Uh, and showed a marked progression and an adaptation in their teeth towards omnivory. So they started out far more carnivorous, like the rest of their members of their family. Uh, The weasel family is mostly carnivorous, um, and started to become far more generalized and eating pretty much anything and everything they can. And that was because they had increased surface area to their molars, which meant that they could uh, take on and eat far more rough and tough stuff as well. They also had modifications to their carnassial teeth as well, uh, meaning that they became a far more generalized uh, eater of things. So, yeah, another reason why they are so successful at what they do and also what makes them very, very cool. Now, diet for badgers. Like I say, badgers will eat pretty much anything that they come across. They can eat several hundred earthworms in one night to give you an idea of just how many they'll go through. They'll use those really, really tough claws on their, their front paws, to dig up pretty much anything and everything that they come across. They've got that massive nose, which they use to stick into things to smell out their prey. Uh, They're also one of the only predators. Well, in fact, let's see if you guys can figure out what they are a predator of. in. It would even be in UK gardens, an animal that you would not expect these guys to eat. In fact, an animal that you would expect not many other animals to even eat. Hedgehog. Well, that's annoying. You got it straight away. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I know
2: that they don't (laughs) tend to their territories don't tend to overlap too much because of that reason.
0: That's pretty much exactly it. So, yeah, I've sorry, I've got I've
1: got sort of some anecdotal badger hedgehog sort of conflict. Oh, not like as in the two species, as in people that I've spoken to in in chatting to people about hedgehogs i've had some people sort of say oh well actually are you looking into the increase of badgers and how people are trying to stop badger culling as also a factor in the decline of hedgehogs so badgers predict my hedgehogs i think is quite widely known and also i just want to say that badgers and hedgehogs have lived alongside each other for forever and it's it's, uh, well survived yeah. on an island
2: enough yeah
1: exactly it's not the badgers that are causing the problems with hedgehogs it's the problems that we've caused
2: absolutely
0: exactly well like i say badgers are one of the only real predators of hedgehogs and it's mostly to do with their thick skin uh, and long claws that basically help them to get past the, the spines in a in a horrible way they basically treat a hedgehog like a nut they'll get their claws in rip it open as much as they can and get to the uh the soft, tasty hedgehog on the inside of the spines there. So uh, Mm. it's, it's well, them doing what they do best, which is taking advantage of anything that they come across. If there are badgers nearby to your house, and this is for pretty much anyone in in UK and Europe, actually, um, you can tempt them into your garden by leaving out unsalted peanuts. That's just normal peanuts. They do quite like them. They are very, very tasty to a lot of animals And of course, providing them water as well. And if you do manage to get something like that, you can then eventually get them somewhat used to you to the point where you can have cameras out there to uh, observe your nocturnal visitors to your garden. I'd love to have badgers in my garden. I know I get hedgehogs, but don't get badgers, which is a shame. But badgers themselves, to give you an idea of their size as well, because the size of a badger can be misleading because uh, a lot of people probably think of them as being tiny or giant in uh, whichever way you, you look at it. Their length is about a hundred centimeters long. They can weigh anywhere between eight to 12 kilos. Uh, and their average lifespan is not very long. It's only about five to eight years, which is really quite short. So when it comes to talking about multi-generational badger sets that have been there for over a hundred years, that is many, many generations of badgers that we're talking about living and modifying those sets that have been there. Mm -hmm. So some of the adaptations that these guys have got, like say they they have short muscular limbs uh, that have massive claws on their front feet. The claws themselves are strong and elongated and stick out. They basically act like a scoop to be able to pull soil, uh, to Mm -hmm. pull out their bedding because these guys will um, quite routinely, on an almost a weekly basis, get rid of old bedding from their burrows. Uh, and stick it outside so that they don't end up with parasites living in amongst their bedding. They're very, very clean animals when it comes to doing that. So you may see a pile of what looks like straw and um, stuff like that next to a, a badger set. And that's usually a good indication that it's in use. So these claws are elongated and assist with digging. The claws themselves are not retractable. It's pretty much only cats that really have retractable claws. And that's because they use them for a totally different purpose. Their hind claws actually wear with age. Um, some old badgers uh, have almost no hind claws whatsoever because they've worn away from constant use, which is kind of sad, really. If you you know have no ability to scratch, because these guys will in- absolutely love uh, a good scratch. They'll sit there uh, and you know uh, fastidiously groom themselves. Oh, good word. To- oh yes, I'm picking really <laughs> oh, oh. out the
1: big guns this this oh, week.
0: Yeah. Um, Their snouts are used for digging as well. Um, They're basically used for probing in uh, and finding uh, where their prey is. They're very, very muscular and quite flexible as well. So that allows them to basically combine with those claws to find their prey, mostly because their sense of vision is pretty poor. Their hearing is very, very good, though. So this is where we come on to conservation of badgers. Badgers um, actually feature in family crests uh, of heraldry in Europe, in Finland, and unfortunately not for a good reason. They feature because they were used uh, for the pelt trade. Um, so the badger pelt features on a Finnish um, heraldic symbol, which, yeah, is not great. Um, but we're not much better uh, in the UK. We used to use badger fur for a badger brush, which is essentially those sort of shaving brushes. That uh, uh-huh. you might be thinking of little clump of hair, a um, little handle for dabbing on uh, shaving cream that traditionally was made of badger fur. So, uh, thankfully, I don't think that happens an awful lot these days. But their conservation sta- uh, status in the UK is something that is uh, very much contested in a lot of ways. A lot of people don't like this, different reasons, which I'll touch on in a minute. But the Protection of Badgers Act, they have their own entire Act of 1992, consolidates past badger legislation that basically added up to different things. Uh, In addition to protecting the badger itself from being killed, persecuted, or trapped, uh, makes it an offence to damage, destroy, or uh, obstruct a badger's set. So, where the badger lives. Um, where badgers pose a problem, licenses can be issued by permit to certain activities. Badger baiting, uh, which is something that did go on and unfortunately still goes on in some underworld CD parts, uh, which is using dogs to fight badgers, basically because we got rid of all of our bears by doing the exact same sort of thing. So we had to move on to the next animal that we could find. Um, so it's a bit of a step down from, badgers to, uh, from bears to badgers. Uh, thankfully has been outlawed since 1835 and the badgers act of 1973 afforded limited protection against badger digging which is basically digging them out uh, and finally outlawed in 1981 so there are various different people who uh, go out there and protect badgers to this day because they are still under threat by people wanting them off their land people just persecuting them because well They're horrible people. Thankfully, there are about 80 local badger groups that have been formed by enthusiasts wishing to protect and study badgers. Their activities um, that these people carry out include uh, protecting badgers and their sets and making sure that people don't have a chance to go badger baiting or destroying uh, areas. They'll even go along and uh, reinforce the sets that have otherwise been damaged. Uh, Helping care for rehabilitated or injured badgers. Uh, and having tunnels and badger-proof fencing added to road schemes uh, and giving developers advice about sets. Because unfortunately, this time of the year now, this is prime badger deaths on the road time of the year. That's Mm. not a very concise way of putting that. But we've basically got all of the young badgers heading out, looking for their new territories, and they're not very good on roads. So this time of the year, we see an awful lot of dead badgers in the UK at the side of roads. So... When it comes to uh, things like this, this is where underpasses are really, really useful and it's convincing local authorities to put those in so that not just badgers, but all sorts of wildlife can pass uh, underneath uh, a road, not come into contact with cars, which let's face it, if you hit a badger with your car, it's going to do you some damage as well. It is, yeah. The animals, Um, you don't want to hit that on the road if you're doing 70 miles an hour. Uh, In 1988, uh, there were an estimated... 42,000 social groups of badgers, and just under 200,000 adult badgers in the UK. By 1997, this had risen to just over 50,000 social groups, so that's good, and 310,000 adult badgers. The population is now probably stable. Mortality is high, though. Like I was saying, when it comes to this time of the year, there are a lot of badger deaths on the roads. In fact, one-fifth of adults are dying each year from road traffic accidents, which it seems to be the major cause of death. However, this is where it comes into human conflict as well. Some badgers are infected with bovine tuberculosis, particularly in the southwest of England, uh, and these animals are subject to controlled campaigns by DEFRA. Um, the continuing debate rages on with people either not wanting to spend money on yet again, making sure the badgers can't get into areas that could contact with Cows, various other things like that, and possibly spreading it. Uh, People wanting to just get rid of them because they think it's easier to just get rid of them from an area. When it comes to that, the simple message is, if you were to wipe out a set of badgers, give it about a year to two years, you will have a brand new uh, set of badgers moving in because you've just left a lovely open bit of territory and a nice bit of uh, real estate there. Perfect for a badger. Mm -hmm. So. It's, it's never going to go away in that sense. So yeah, the, uh, the debate, shall we say, rages on. I will not go into that now because I would be here the rest of the evening if that were the case. But we did actually um, touch on just very briefly the last thing I was going to bring up, and that's badgers in, in popular culture and in folklore, um, because they do actually play an important part in um, various European uh, folklore. Um, In Irish mythology, badgers are portrayed as shapeshifters, uh, which allows them to be able to observe people. In German mythology, they are portrayed as cautious and peace loving. Uh, They basically love nothing more than being in their home and being surrounded by their home, which makes them sound a little bit like hobbits, really, which I quite like. Uh, uh, does it does sound sort of way. like
1: like that's transferred across to things like Wind in the Willows and stuff like that, because, yeah. Well,
0: yeah, that Badger, does then transfer. Badger into, is a hermit. Yeah, pretty much. Wind in the Willows. Um, you know, he's, a, he's sort of a gruff hermit who wants nothing to do with uh, with anyone. However, he's still kind-hearted mm-hmm. uh, and wants to uh, to interact with uh, the main characters in a good way. Um, another fantastic uh badger that is, um, is in pop culture, and I'd I'd recommend children trying to find this as a series. It's certainly the books. Um, the Animals of Farthing Wood,
1: another badger
0: who is yeah. very much a, a sort of a hermit, but he is one of the main characters in it and helps out Mole and Toad, two of the other main characters. He's he's like a kindly elder. Yeah, yeah. He was one of my, my favourite characters. He's pretty harmless. It. The only, I would give a warning that the Animals of Farthing Wood series, uh, certainly the TV show, can be a little jarring if you aren't used to uh, animals dying, because well a lot, a lot of those characters die. <laughs> only in this day and
1: age, and when I was a kid and I watched that thing, that was, yeah. I was just, well, this is life, isn't it? You know, sometimes butcher birds do grab hold of mice and put them onto brambles. <laughs> this, and is what in
0: the this is true. This is true. I've got to admit, yeah, I, I didn't feel particularly. I, I don't know whether that makes us callous or not, but I, I don't think it did you, any damage. I don't, I don't think I was yeah too upset. And of course, Tommy Brock, which was the uh, the badger in Um Beatrix Potter, uh, he's actually portrayed as a little bit more nasty than um, than the sort of kindly badger, as it were. He actually kidnaps two of the uh, the rabbits at one point, so yeah, not as not as nice as he could be. The other ones you've got that are worth mention, you've got um, Red Wall, which is a fantastic book series, which is uh, the badges in that are portrayed as being sort of uh, knights in uh, armor, um, basically sort of berserker warriors. It's a very interesting series, I'd recommend anyone reading that one. Uh, and, of course, the only other one that I thought would be worth mentoring is, well, you actually mentioned it earlier, is Bodger and Badger. <laughs> The puppet badger from the uh, from the, the 90s in the UK, uh, which unless you were living in the UK at that point, you probably never heard of. But it was a badger puppet that was obsessed with mashed potato and used to basically throw mashed potato everywhere and chaos ensued. But yeah, badgers, they are part of our heritage throughout UK uh, and throughout uh, Europe and in fact throughout Asia as well. They're a fantastic animal that certainly don't deserve to be persecuted for, well, shall we say people's laziness to uh, the, the boar thing as well. If we don't make sure that we don't want wildlife in those areas, we need to make sure that we're keeping them out of those areas or, you know, being accountable for that. Um, they're also an animal, like I say, that plays a huge part in folklore and legend and is, uh, yeah, it was a, fasc- a fantastic and fascinating animal. But I hope someday will actually turn up in my garden. Well, we'll go on now from uh, this fantastic creature to other creatures that are basically pretending to be things that they're not in our Word of the Week. It's Word of the Week. Right, well, this week's Word of the Week, we're looking at a form of mimicry. There are a couple of different forms of mimicry, but specifically this week, we're looking at Batesian mimicry. And that doesn't mean that you end up uh, getting a motel and murdering people in the shower or looking like you own a motel and murder people in the shower. Um, Well, we're in fact looking at uh, mimicry that is done uh, by a variety of different animals. So we will cover some of the other forms of mimicry uh, in later episodes. But this one, I think, is probably the the classic that most people are familiar with when it comes to mimicry. And this is essentially a form of mimicry that is done uh, by an animal that is harmless to make it seem like it's far more dangerous than it is. Uh, It's a way of making sure that it doesn't get eaten or attacked or even bothered um, by a variety of different uh, creatures. Um, And we can, well, most people could probably think of some interesting Batesian uh, mimics uh, that are out there. you probably are aware of one, you may not even be aware of one, but there are a huge variety. Now, first off, before we go into some of the examples, it's usually a form of mimicry where just the mimic benefits. Um, So it's got nothing to do with the animal it's pretending to be, uh, but it is benefiting entirely because well, it stays alive. It's also usually takes place where there are far more of the species it's trying to imitate than the actual mimic itself. The reason for this being, if there were far more mimics than there were dangerous creatures, the whole point of being a dangerous creature would rub off and uh, it wouldn't mean absolutely anything at all. So the animals have got to be in less of a number than the uh, the animals that they are trying to mimic. Uh, and it's sometimes known uh, as, a, as a parasitic relationship in, in some senses because they're benefiting uh, from another animal in a lot of ways. Copyright. It's copyright, isn't it? Yeah. It's copyright infringement, yeah. So some really fantastic examples and probably one that you may have seen in your garden. You may have thought that there was a bee or a wasp flying around you at one point, only for it to turn around and look slightly different in some ways uh, than a bee or a wasp. And that's probably because it's a hoverfly. There are hundreds of species of hoverfly. uh, And these harmless little insects are fantastic pollinators. But because they don't want to get eaten by things, They have the same markings. They even have the same flight patterns as certain species that they mimic. There are hoverflies that mimic bumblebees. There are hoverflies that mimic hornets. There are hoverflies that mimic wasps, all sorts of different things. In doing that, they stay safe because nothing wants to attack a wasp or a bee because they don't want to get stung. It's a fantastic way of staying safe. So you may have even come across one in the garden. Um, There are certain species of butterfly That pretend to be ones that are highly toxic uh, and don't taste nice. So, if a bird eats them, they're going to not want to touch them at all. It means that they can stay, uh, that they can can basically feed, pretend to be something that they're not, and keep on going. A really good example from vertebrate animals, uh, and one that you may not have thought of, is baby cheetahs. Baby cheetahs got the fantastic almost white markings, whitish grey markings Mm -hmm. going down their back, which adult cheetahs don't have. And this is because they pretend to be honey badgers. They even stick their tails up in the air a little bit like a honey badger. If you don't know how aggressive a honey badger is, go on YouTube and type in honey badger and you will find a variety of different videos of honey badgers taking on everything from lions to rhinos to buffalo And usually winning, Um, It's one thing we can certainly say, is that they are not an animal to be messed with. Um, Cheetah cubs very much are. They're just big
2: kittens.
0: (laughs) But if you pretend to be a honey badger, most things are going to steer clear of you. And one other one that's certainly worth mentioning that is one that I've learned about in doing this research uh, for this, which I know, Drew, you were interested when I was telling you about it earlier, is cuckoos, the uh, European or Eurasian cuckoo. Uh, has the same color markings on its body as uh, a sparrowhawk, which is the sort of lovely gray coloring with uh, bars on its chest and bright uh, yellow legs, yellow around the face as well. Now, this actually allows the cuckoo to get a little bit more time on a bird's nest, undisturbed, to be able to lay its eggs. And that's because if those small birds like uh, reed warblers, marsh tits, that sort of thing, see a bird like a sparrowhawk, they're not going to go close to it because they're on the Sparrowhawk's menu most of the time, which gives the cuckoo enough time to get into the nest, lay its eggs, and then fly off. By the, that point, the bird has done what it needs to do uh, and has gotten away scot-free. So a fantastic way of staying ahead of the game, really. It doesn't always work, but it works so well that a lot of animals can just bluff their way through things.
2: <laughs> you guys got any good examples? Uh Published milk snake, with that count as one with coral snakes?
0: Yeah, milk snakes and coral snakes. They're pretending to be something they're not a totally harmless mm-hmm. snake, pretending to be something highly dangerous and highly venomous. Just I, suppose it, I suppose uh, it stick insects
1: count, or is that just camouflage? Or Because it's mimicry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah. a myth of a branch.
0: Yeah, but branches aren't dangerous.
1: Oh, I see. Does it have to be specifically a uh, dangerous animal? Okay, right. It would be. I understand. <laughs> I
2: understand
0: the word of the week now. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, Batesian mimicry. It's a way of seeming bigger and tougher than you actually are, and uh, staying safe in the process. So um, yeah, that's our word of the week for this week. So, so let's um, let's go from creatures pretending to be what they're not to to our emails, which are very much what they are. So, uh... <laughs> well, they're not pretending to be something they're not—not not as far as I'm aware.
1: Unless they're viruses. Wow! Well, don't send us viruses. <laughs>
0: don't send us viruses. Uh, right. You know how curious we are. We'll just click. Uh, oh, <laughs> right. Let's go into. Uh, let's go into it. Bing! You've got mail. Oh, it's an email. Right. Well, we're into this week's emails, which are definitely emails. We've we've confirmed that they're not honey badgers, or uh, cheetah cubs, or even um, Trojans. They're, they're not. They're not even uh, stick insects, uh, either. Um, so, wow. <laughs> what have we got? Um, so, what have we got, Drew? We've we have got a few
1: questions from Leah, um, who sent us some questions by email, and. I'm genuinely really sorry, Leah, because it took us so long to actually—we uh, bypassed them somehow. They just got hidden among all of the uh, like responses from Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, but I've, we found them today, and uh, we've dug them up, and we're going to answer a couple of them for you now. So the first one that we've got, because you asked for four questions overall, we're going to cover two of them today. First one that we've got is: Could we all tell? a real emotional or tearjerker moment from our careers. <laughs>
0: hmm. who, would, who would like to go first or not? Sh- shall I get the horrific one out of the way first? You could get a horrific one out of the way, yeah. This is, this is one of the moments that, that has always stuck with me, and it's, it's very vivid in my mind in that it was a really bad day. As a zookeeper, you're used to animals dying, but when it's one that you're quite close to, It's Mm. it hits you hard regardless. Um, And that was the day when one of my emus uh, had a prolapse um, and unfortunately bled to death. Pretty much bled to death on me uh, whilst the vet was there. There was nothing that could be done and she just sort of died in my arms. So uh, it still makes me sad to think about it. She was a lovely emu. And um, yeah, well, not much else really to say on that one. No, not that's a, not a very nice thing. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd start with the horrific one. So
2: uh, either of you two want to jump in, I can uh, see where this is going. <laughs> like we should scale this. To, how bad is your one, Drew? Because that's oh, pretty oh, rough.
1: It, it is pretty rough. I'm I'm really struggling to think of a specific, but I have known. <laughs> a group of animals that I've worked with that have lost a number of members, all of which um, hit me quite hard. And that would be groups of uh, capybara and also wolves as well that started to drop too, that, that hit me quite hard. and was quite difficult to, uh, to deal with, but yeah, I I mean, I don't think you're going to find a happy story out of this one. Are you really?
2: (laughs) Not really. No, no. Aaron. Um, Um, So, can I cheat and give two? Because of course you can you yeah, give as many as you like. As well, one it? is one is very dark, very very dark. <laughs> so I'll bring you up with the second one. That's the only reason I'm going to give you the second one. Mm. So the most tear-jerking emotional moment for me was when I was in Malaysia and we were doing a poacher trek. I think it was poacher trek that day. So basically going into the jungle and looking for evidence of. uh of um, poacher activity and the first thing that you see is you've got like on the trees they'll carve little symbols almost like poacher language hieroglyphs they they basically give directions it's like another language almost it's, it's directions it's how many and who sorry not who sorry what they've got like in terms of sto- stocks and stuff so that's the first one we found then we came across an actual encampment and found the stores and everything all of this has to be logged onto a gps um and then you go we we carry on we found shotgun shells uh on the track that we were following and then we found a, like a pangolin size snare so you kind of get the feeling i'm being set up for something bad <laughs> okay um and then we stop to have a break uh there's it's like a little kind of um it's not a clearing, but it's a little a little area where light is kind of breaking through down to the forest floor. And we stopped to have a, a drink and to, you know, catch our breath and stuff. And the guy who was, who was kind of supervising us, he, he knew about my, my zookeeper background and stuff. I was a l- little bit more interested or a little bit more switched on to the problems that these places face. Uh, so we'd spoken in great detail at great length about a lot of things. was Anyway, he said to me, here, yeah, let me show you what you're, like what, what we're up against here. So we just went off just a little way away from where everyone was sat down to, to eat and drink and stuff. And all you can see like, in front of you is just thick, like jungle bush kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he pushes back a branch and I'm not kidding. He pushes back this branch and I still get a lump in my throat just talking about this the uh as far as the eye can see completely barren brown hillsides uh with tree stumps smoldering heavy machinery for miles and miles and it's still like the tree stumps are still smoldering uh and it's all for uh clearing the rainforest for um palm oil plantations and i think it was gold mines as well and it was at that moment that you looking out into this uh Wanton destruction. For, you're not just looking at death; you're looking at extinction, death on a scale that you cannot comprehend. Your brain cannot register it properly, and then you so, you you remember all the times that people back home have like posted something on Facebook. They've shared something on Facebook, a video or something, and, and it's like they have no idea what well, it's like. I could tu- I could reach out. And I could touch death in its most expansive form. And um, I came back from Asia. When I came back, I had nightmares for months about it. Waking up from dreams where the forest was on fire and animals were on fire, and I wake up in a in a sweat. It was horrible. So that's my tearjerker nope. moment. Wow. To bring you all up, <laughs> to bring you all up. Well, the next uh, question will as well. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, I might leave. No, I will tell you the story. This, this, so my my mum's kind of um, long lost dad, because um, my granddad is my step. is technically my my mum's stepdad, but her long lost dad. He loved elephants, and I I was told when my um as as much as my mum knew that he loved elephants and that he'd gone out and like followed and the uh g p s elephants and all that and I've always loved elephants anyway and uh it, the first time I ever saw an Asian elephant up close and could touch it and and l- help look after it a bit that was incredibly powerful uh, if in a good way hmm. so, yeah well, there you go.
0: Well, that pretty much touches on our second question.
2: Uh, Drew, do you want to... Well, that one was a captive one. Thank no, God.
0: that's true. That's true. But yes.
2: it does go towards it. It so does go heard. towards it. Drew, what is our second
0: question?
1: Yeah, so the second question is, when did we have a lump in our throats when we spotted something in the wild that you had never thought that you would see? Who wants to go first on this one?
0: I'll jump in there. Um... First Same
1: order, again. I guess. So. Yeah, why not? Yeah,
0: so yeah, um, for me, uh, this is gonna sound really obvious. Say it with me now. When yep. I saw uh,
2: Australia,
0: <laughs> you <laughs> saw <an laughs> Australia. When I saw an Australia, no, um, yeah, when I saw a wetter for the first time in the wild was pretty awesome, to be honest. Um, Did you
1: expect not to see one? <laughs>
0: I did and I didn't. We we went to an awful lot of places. I went out of a night, you know, with a torch, looking in different places. I'd seen them in captivity. I'd seen them hiding in wetter motels, which are man-made ones. Um, which you know, it, it's kind of like seeing them in the wild, but there's 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 a difference, I think, between seeing one hiding away during the day and you opening like a log and seeing it, and it sort of going ah, get away from me to going out in the night and seeing one sitting there in front of you on a tree, you know, it, it doing what it wants to do, basically. So um, I didn't necessarily think I wouldn't see one. I, I just know that when I've gone looking for a lot of different insects and invertebrates in the past, it's very hit and miss. And it can be you find everything or you find nothing. I went looking for the, the scorpions that are supposed to be at Swanage. Um, for weeks on end with a, a UV light to try and spot them, didn't see a single one. Um, and they're supposed to be relatively easy to find as, a, as a, a species that have turned up in the UK. And, you know, I never count on seeing anything like that. Um, my new goal at the moment, and something that would get a lump in my throat, is to uh, try and spot some of the stick insects uh, that are wild in the UK, not native, one that I'd certainly like to see. Hmm. And just on a on a captive note as well actually the one that certainly put a lump in my throat was actually getting to handle a tuatara whilst in New Zealand yeah. as well it was a captive one but oh, oh I was smiling from ear to ear that day.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can certainly imagine. Jumping yeah. back to the last question just very quickly as well about emotional tearjackers. Uh, not zoo-based, but uh, something that always gets me is when uh, uh, Aragorn turns to the hobbits and says, uh, "You guys bow to no one." Uh, that war. Will... Oh, that's a tough one. Anyway, <laughs> um, well, I'm talking about film here. Tier- <laughs> well, to be fair, I didn't actually specify. No, so, that's true. Uh, okay. I'm probably put in my my biggest tearjerker. That's uh, that's that one. Gets me every time.
2: Uh, anyway, no. Uh, what. It's when he takes his mask off and he says, let me look on you with my own eyes. Uh, okay. we're, not, we're not going into a lot of oh, wow. with you.
0: Jesus. We're going not- to go too much down the
2: path. <laughs> I,
1: I don't think I've ever cried at the Star Wars. <laughs> well, maybe at the dialogue.
2: Then you are lost. Right,
1: let's, <laughs>
0: let's bring it back.
1: Anyway, let's bring it back. Bring it back. Um, so yeah, they're spotting something in the wild I've never thought I'd see. Uh, to be fair, a lot of these are quite recent. Um, I do remember seeing I spoke like a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, about seeing a Nile monitor on Safari, which I was really excited about, um, especially compared to you know seeing elephants and all sorts of other megafauna. And seeing that Nile monitor really excited me. Also, and I didn't expect to see one either. And also I saw a genet. A wild genet. Yeah, um, okay small, spotty, cat-like creature for people who are not familiar. I saw a wild genet out uh, out there uh, on safari as well. I was very ill, I remember, when I saw the mm. genet. I didn't actually appreciate it at the time as much as I should have done. I don't know what hit me, but a bug hit me basically halfway through the safari, and I was just, just basically rocking in the back of the truck. <laughs> go, I don't hear it anymore. <laughs> oh, there's a Wars genet. The worst times. I can't enjoy it. Um, anyway... <laughs> Uh, oh, actually, no. There is one that's a, a lot further back. I, when I was very young, I saw a hoopoe.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, is
1: the hoopoe I've ever seen uh, in the UK? And for people yes. who are again aware, it's an orange, orange bird. Incredible sort of uh, mohawk crest, and they've got sort of black, black and white stripes down the back of the wing. Uh, they're migratory, so they live mainly. They live half half their year in Africa, half their year they come over. Uh, but yeah, I remember seeing a hoopoe, and that really stuck with me. Um, I've had an affinity for those birds ever since, um, and yeah, the most recently I've seen an osprey, which I did not expect to see. This was when I was looking for sand lizards as well. I was looking at the ground, and then just I looked up at the right moment, and then there was an osprey that flew across a nearby harbour. Uh, I was like, oh my God, I did not expect to see an osprey. Uh, I didn't see any sand lizards sadly, but the osprey made up for it. And mm. then the last one, which I think is probably the big one. And you guys are going to be very jealous when I that I mention this one again. Do you do you remember me talking about this at all?
0: Um, I don't know. I can't can't think exactly which one.
1: Well, I held it as well. A genuine, the real deal, a smooth snake, right uh, here yeah. in the UK. Oh, uh, yeah. rarest reptile. There are so few of them here, and I found i didn't find it but the guy i was with found it it was licensed so that's why we could look for them and i got to hold it and uh I, that genuinely if that, yeah, that genuinely really really took my breath away considering that we didn't see any of other well apart from slow one we didn't really see any of the reptiles that day and that the last the last sheet of tin that we moved there was a smooth stake underneath it and i just thought well, okay that's considering how sort of rough this day's been or how disappointing this day's been this has made it um <laughs> a very very happy boy that's mm. mine
2: definitely Aaron what about you um i'll keep this one quick because my last story was almost a novel, no, a novel. <laughs> um <laughs> um so lump lumpenmuff- so when i lived in barcelona we would go out on i I tried to find the name of the place uh, so I could give them a shout out, but I can't. I think it was Biodiversitat Marina, but I, I, I can't remember. So don't quote me on that. But we go out on the um, volunteer, go out on the ferries from Barcelona to uh, La Palma, Mallorca. And on the way, so you, you, you ship out, and then on the way back, you Go up to basically where the crew would be, uh, but it's on cruise control, so there's no one there, which is quite eerie. But you you basically use that as your hub, and you do a census on the um on the cetacean species that are using the Mediterranean. They're trying to work out who's using it and how many of them. And uh, it was an incredible uh, incredible day. I saw. Did you did
1: you talk about this on your um? Was it your sperm whale uh, creature feature?
2: I think I mentioned it in passing mm. because because it was someone I was with who was kind of like leading us said that they know that sperm whales use the Balearic region of the Mediterranean waters, but they've yet to see them and know exactly how many are there. So it, the sperm whale is kind of their holy grail of uh, oh. of, of cetacean uh, senses right. in. Uh so I had hoped to see one of those, but yeah, um that was that the, was
1: just a quick uh quick in podcast advert to uh, go check out the uh, sperm whale episode if you have yeah, already listened to that. It's a good episode, very good. I think. It is good. I, like the, I good. like the
2: sperm whale one. Yeah. Um so yeah, we're we we're saving back and we're sensing I saw um uh I saw a lot of different fish breaching uh which was really cool. Um I saw two species of dolphin. I think it was, it was def, definitely bottlenosed. And if I remember right, it was striped. If I can dig out the videos, they might be cool to put up on the, yeah. on the Facebook. But the thing that got me, because I've always wanted to see them, and it was the first time I managed to see them in the world, was the fin whale, which is the second largest whale species on the planet. They can get to, I think it's 80 foot. There was a pod of seven of them and through our binoculars we could see that they had a calf and the car i'm getting excited (laughs) the calf (laughs) was the the calf was the size of a car it was huge it was incredible so yeah that that was the one that put a lump in my throat uh, Mm. when i spotted something in the wild that i've always wanted to see but never really thought i'd see so now like i'm like fully hooked i've seen thin whale i want to see blue whale orca and sperm whale now yeah, very cool.
0: I've got to admit, the only whale I've managed to see is a southern right, but those was pretty uh,
1: cool. Yeah, I've seen southern rights, and I've seen—I did see a humpback where I didn't expect mm. to see. To be fair, we
2: did say we did see very far off. We did see—is um, it a beaked whale or a toothed whale or something like something that? Oh, I can't remember. Cool. Of, can't remember what one it was. But you could, basically, the training is great for cetacean spotting in a sense. For the same reason why it's crap for surfing but like, the Mediterranean wouldn't know a wave if Poseidon <laughs> picked up a boulder and chucked it it's uh there's no such thing as waves in the Mediterranean it's, just, it's calm as anything and you're just looking for your binoculars out to the distance and you're, you're basically looking for spouts the, uh, the blow. any movement yeah Um, that's the first giveaway and then if you're lucky you start to see flukes and dorsals and stuff like that but it's the sp- it's the spout or the blow that Gives it away i think i mentioned in that sperm whale episode that uh, or it might have been in the orca episode but i mentioned in one of them that every species has a unique and individual blow so that's yes, how you, you start to that. tell them apart
0: yeah
1: oh, actually i'm not sure if you mentioned that maybe maybe you should go listen and uh, check it out
0: i think yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something homework
2: for you listeners yeah. listen to us again
0: if we haven't already again
2: tell us the difference between an orca blow and a sperm whale blow yeah, yeah.
0: so um yeah some fantastic questions and we've got a few more from Leah which we will answer uh, either next week or the week after There's some really quite in-depth questions they're quite good mm-hmm. um, but if you dear listener uh, want to get in contact with us remember you can do that by sending us an email uh, at either uh, the nat history cupboard at gmail.com which is our email uh, you can also get in contact with us on Twitter and on Facebook, which our Twitter handle is at nh cupboard. Um, we've got loads of different things going up there all the time, especially if I end up posting Drew's article before he's even had a chance to talk about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> but remember, if you liked what you've uh, you've heard, um, you can leave a review, subscribe, and all that sort of good stuff. Smash that bell, that icon, that whatever Smash they've got on about that. Yeah, put some five stars, uh, do whatever. You can do all of that sort of uh, stuff on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Um, but that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-hosts. Big thank you, Drew. Thank you, Professor. That's all right.
2: <laughs> and a big thank you, Aaron. And a very big You're welcome to you to Professor Gareth.
0: That's okay. And obviously a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. You know, I'm somewhat of a scientist myself. (laughs) (laughs) Professor. You're somewhat
1: of a professor yourself.